Welcome to the Women in Public Policy Program Seminar Series Podcast at the Harvard Kennedy School. Um, grabbing their lunch. Uh, my name is Hannah Riley Bowles, and I'm before you as a research director at the Women in Public Policy Program, uh, where here we are dedicated to closing gender gaps in the areas of economic opportunity, political participation, health, and education. It's a very ambitious agenda. Um, part of that is um, through um, supporting and disseminating and creating conversation around academic research related to gender. Um, and so this seminar is, uh, is, is part of that mission. Now, uh, while we're sitting together in a relatively small seminar room, I want you to imagine thousands of other podcasters also um, joining us uh, in the room, or not podcasters, I guess podcast consumers. Um, we Our seminars have been downloaded now um, over 11,000 times. So um, in the interest of thinking, particularly in the interest of thinking about our broader community of listeners, what we ask is for people to make sure they've turned off their cell phones and that when they ask questions that they're genuinely questions and that they um, and that they relate to the subject of the presentation, um, which which is uh, we don't have much trouble with those constraints. Um, all right, wonderful. Now I am so especially delighted to be introducing Lakshmi Ramarajan today, <coughs> who is a professor at the Harvard Business School. Lakshmi is very much a friend of the Women in Public Policy program, and many of us. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ditch your formal invitation. I just want to highlight a couple things about Lakshmi. Um, one, before entering academia, Lakshmi was very much a kindred spirit of many of our Kennedy, I mean, I'm sorry, Kennedy School community. She actually worked in international development um, in West Africa and on, on conflict-related issues, and then was recruited into academia. And within academia, she's been one of really the leading thinkers around um, intersectionality, um, which is really a space where I think in some ways our students are ahead of us as faculty in terms of their lived experience or self-identities. And Lakshmi has been one of the people who's sort of getting beyond just saying, oh, you're a woman and you're black or something like that. She's actually been um, one of the first people to get people thinking much more broadly about the many identities um, that are salient for them at various points in time and how people use those multiple identities to motivate themselves. Um, at work and through other endeavors. And I'm just going to, really honored to have you here, Lakshmi, and she is going to present um, some of her work right now on blurring the boundaries. Thank you very much, Hannah. That was a very nice introduction. And in fact, you stole my opening line. Oh, no. <laughs> no. Um, which basically was that I'm super excited to be here because I have uh, I've long followed the stuff that you guys have been doing here at the Kennedy School with the Women's Public Policy Program. Um, and share this work with you. This work is a collaboration with uh, Stefan Dimitriadis, who is right here, an awesome graduate student in our uh, OB and SOCH program, who is the first author on this paper, and Julie Batalana, who is also here, who, as you guys know, uh, shares half of her mental, emotional, and intellectual energy with you um, at HKS and the Business School. And, uh, and Matt Lee, um, who cannot be here in person, obviously, but is joining us in spirit. Um, he's at INSEAD in Singapore. Um, and so as uh, Hannah just mentioned, I study multiple identities. So basically, how do people identify themselves with many different social roles and groups simultaneously, and how does this impact consequences we think are important for organizations? Um, and I focus particularly on gender in, my, in some of my work because this is a primary way in which people identify themselves, but also in which they're identified by others. 
Um, so this paper is intellectually interesting to me because it's about gender and this interplay between social and commercial sectors. But as Hannah alluded to, it's also personally extremely motivating to me because I, I really felt when I was working, when Julie and Matt and, um, and Stefan were talking about this paper, like there was something about it that personally resonated in this, my own journey from you know, international NGOs and development work and living in this nonprofit world to wait a second, you go to a business school, which is where I did my PhD and now where I work and just you know, the completely different mental models that people use. Um, and so it's a relationship that Maybe I over-identified with at times. <laughs> so here we go. So the, let's start with the basics. What do we mean by this blurring of the boundaries between the social and commercial sectors that we allude to in the beginning? So as we know, the social and commercial sectors have been distinct for um, quite a few years, uh, quite, you know, since their inception, essentially. People have talked about the goals, the values, the ideals that motivate social sector workers and organizations around issues and ideals such as social welfare, volunteerism, communalism. And the commercial sector holds a very distinct set of um, values and, and motives, uh, such as profit maximization, efficiency, competition. These are goals that people are supposed to pursue and want to pursue when they move into these organizations. Um, but over the last 30 or so years, uh, the, the boundaries between these different sectors have started to blur, such that, for example, People use commercial practices in social sector organizations. They hire professionals coming out of business schools to run their organizations. They use marketing and accounting practices that you would commonly see in uh, commercial sector organizations. And what this has meant um, is that if you are now an organization, a new organization in the social sector, you actually have some choices to make. So if you think just about the coexistence, you have to manage these tensions between the coexistence of these two different sets of goals as well as the practices in your organization that they represent. And today we're going to be talking specifically about practices related to how do you generate revenue for your organization. So in the social sector traditionally the revenue generating model is charity. You raise funds through donations, through grants. Many of us have lived this life and the difficulties that it involves. In the commercial sector you often use you know, providing uh, services and products that you charge people for and you earn revenue. So as a new organization in the social sector this choice you have, you can either use typical models of funding and organize yourself around raising money through charity and donations, or you can actually choose to use this fairly different type of commercial practice that has been entering the field. And this is what we dive into. But what's really interesting and surprising about much of the research that's looked at this particular kind of choice that organizations make is that they've often pointed to environmental factors. So why do organizations in the social sector go towards these new models? Well, maybe it's perhaps because government funding has dried up, there are environmental shocks to the system, things like that. Um, but no one has really used a gender lens to sort of understand this question. And yet, what is very apparent to us, and might be quite apparent to you, since you're all people in this room who think about gender, is that if you think about the goals, values, and types of work that are represented by these two sectors, they're quite clearly gendered. Right? So the values and norms that are supposed to motivate social sector organizations are very highly identified with feminine types of work, so caring, selflessness, communalism, and these commercial sector practices can be really overlaid with this masculine type of work, so risk-taking, competitiveness, and agentic work. And so our question is basically how do you understand the locus of these tensions between the blurring of the boundaries of social and commercial sector with a gender lens that says that these tensions actually represent underlying tensions between masculine and feminine types of work and practices. Um, 
And to do this, we actually take um, a gendered perspective in two ways. Um, so, so our basic question is now, if you think about this underlying gender dynamic, what does the new social venture um, actually, how does it organize itself around these new re revenue models? And we take this gender lens, um, particularly borrowing from Ridgeway and others, where we think about gender not as an individual property um, or characteristic, <laughs> but rather a system of widely held cultural beliefs that are activated in particular social relational contexts. Right? And we think, about, um, we think about these contexts in two ways. The first context we consider is if you just think that the social sector is feminine-typed work and in this feminine context, the use of commercial activity then represents this encroachment or introduction of a more masculine-typed activity. And we ask, to what extent do female social <laughs> venture founders use commercial activities when they found new social sector organizations? And then we also think about the context of the commercial sector. And we suggest that perhaps um, to what extent do, um, does, to what extent does the, um, do, does, the represent, does feminine representation in the commercial sector around commercial practices then perhaps affect the use of commercial activity in the social sector? So what we're thinking about are actually two basic research questions. If you're the founder of the social venture, to what extent do female social venture founders in a feminine type sector actually engage in this masculine type activity? And then how might the proportion of women who engage in this commercial masculine type activity in the commercial sector influence this underlying dynamic? Um, so our model is, all right, so let me first walk you through our <laughs> two core hypotheses and then I'll explain um, what the overall model looks like in the data. I'm flying through stuff, so please feel free to stop me and interrupt if you have um, questions or clarifications. I want to leave enough room for discussion as well at the end. Um, so our first core hypothesis, why would we imagine that um, female social venture founders might actually be less inclined to engage in commercial, um, in commercial practices within their organizations? So just from a straightforward perspective, you might say, well, this is not really a novel hypothesis, right? What we'd expect to see. But what I want to point out is, in fact, much of the research that we have, and actually Hannah and I were talking about this last week in, in, in another seminar, much of the work we have is around women engaging in masculine-typed practices in highly masculine contexts. And so it's not clear automatically on the surface that you should expect to see the same kind of dynamic. However, the little research we do have that we draw on suggests that, in fact, maybe they would be even more motivated to not engage in commercial, um, in commercial practices in their organizations for a couple of reasons, even within a feminine-type sector where you might think they might have um, you know, a greater sense of, uh, of flexibility. The first is that, in fact, um, we know a little bit from the backlash research that when women engage in masculine-type activity in feminine settings, that backlash is even more likely to be amplified because it's a greater violation of norms. Um, and so you might expect that, in fact, women are still, even in this setting, less likely to do so. Um, the second reason that we sort of, the underlying reason that we propose is that in the social sector, you might also imagine that, that charity-driven revenue practices are not just the norm, but they're held up as somewhat of an ideal, right? And so to that extent, workers in that sector would be more likely to identify with and perhaps even defend those practices against what they see as different. And so for those couple of reasons, we suggest that female social venture founders, even when they're founding organizations in the social sector, um, women are less likely to use commercial activity in their social ventures than male, so, than male founders. 
The second hypothesis um, adds a bit more uh, nuance and complication to this underlying story. We look at local communities. Now, why do we think about local communities? For a couple of reasons. First, we have some research that, su that suggests that local communities are actually where the social and commercial sectors inter interact. Right? So individuals and organizations from both sectors come together in often local community forms. So you can think about you know, the movement for a better Detroit you know, that has been going on for the last, uh, you know, for the last decade, where you, know, you, you get organizations that are committed to a particular community to come together from different sectors. The second reason for social venture founders in particular, local communities are where beneficiaries and sources of funding are often located. And within local communities, we suggest that female business owners might actually have an influence on women, so, female social venture founders' engagement in commercial practices. Now, why do we think this is interesting? This is an interesting subset of people in the community to look at because these are women who are engaging in commercial activity, right? And so you might expect that these are women engaging in commercial activity exactly situated at this boundary between the social and commercial sectors, and so they might have some sort of an impact on cultural beliefs related to women engaging in commercial practices, <laughs> such that these female social venture founders might self-stereotype less, they might fear or actually face backlash less, and may not identify as much or put as much of themselves into identifying with the charity model um, and see that, the, that these other models are available. So our second hypothesis is essentially a moderating hypothesis. Female social venture founders in communities where there is a higher proportion of business owners who are female are more likely to use commercial activity in their social ventures than women in other communities. So it's a very basic model, but we think this is fairly novel and interesting for the reasons that I was just explaining. The first is a main effect, whether um, male or female social venture founders and the likelihood of using commercial activity. And the second is this moderating or interaction effect that the percentage of female business owners in a community should actually have, uh, should mitigate this effect. I'm actually gonna walk you through two sets of data um, but maybe this is a good time to pause and ask if there are any questions or thoughts for discussion, clarifications. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess I'm just uh, I'm wondering: um, Are we assuming here that the use of commercial activity is like a necessarily good thing? That's a wonderful question. Um, no, we are not assuming that. We are actually going to bring that question up for you at the very end as part of our discussion. So this is just, do they engage in it or not? And you can imagine that there is a really, and there is actually, in the, um, both in the literature and in practice, a big debate about whether we would want this or not. Yeah. <coughs> I'm curious about how churches fit into your model, because when you, you know, you have um, caring and communal and, and all that, that seems to me to be very much in line with the church, which is frequently very male-dominated. Yeah, that's a very interesting question. We don't actually consider this in our, you know, sort of main models, but we do account for religious practices and religious communities, and you'll see that in some of our robustness checks. But I think it's a, it, it was a question that we definitely thought about in terms of what these communities look like and represent. I'm just wondering, where do social venture founders come from? Yeah. Meaning, so walk walk me through what um, your expectation so is. If they have previous career experience or mm -hmm. um, support their backgrounds going in. 
Yeah. So and but you're saying, do, are they likely to be more? Yeah. Like, <laughs> meaning, do you think women are more likely to be social venture founders? Yeah, so the women like go up through the ladder in yeah. NGOs or something like this, whereas men come from the commercial sector. Right. Or, I don't know. I just right. don't know anything about it. Yeah. So um, from an empirical standpoint, here we're only looking at people who've already decided that they are going to start a social venture, and then we look at, we're looking at the at the sort of consequences for organizing your um, your new venture in a particular fashion. But I think in terms of you know what leads to it, so we do control for things like have you had any exposure to a business school, for example, or you know your undergraduate education, things like that. We also look at um, you know, and I I think maybe that might be a question that both either Julie or Matt might um, Julie or Stefan might be more likely to answer um, if there's anything more on that that we want to say. When you get to the sample and you get to talk about it, maybe you can sort of take all the take questions. There. But we are, the beauty of it is that we have the replication. So any yeah. of the questions we may have about the population we have in the first sample, we're we can addressing all that with the second population. Yeah. yeah. Um, did you uh, include anything about board composition of these ventures? Either the composition, the gender composition of the board, or other characteristics? Um, we do have some robustness checks that look at what their teams were like, and also in the second sample you'll see that we're getting there. But it sounds like all these questions are about the empirics, so why don't I just keep going there, and then we'll have more of this at the end. Um, this is great. Okay, so I'm going to walk you through two different uh, data sets, and one, the first is sort of the main sample where we test our hypotheses, and the second is a constructive replication, um, and I'll tell you a little bit about each one as we go through it. The first is actually a unique, actually very unique, and kudos to uh, Julie and Matt in particular for um, putting a ton of effort into collecting one of the first large data sets, um, you know, over hun hundreds of observations um, over time on social ventures. This is a unique random sample of all applications to a prominent fellowship program for early stage social ventures. We take ventures uh, that applied in the years 2007 and 2008. And so these are ventures that are less than two years old at the time that they apply. Um, and so while there might be self-selection from a you know, male or female perspective into do you decide to found or not, once we get here, we're sort of looking at the entire set um, of, of people who decide to apply for this uh, fellowship program. We have 584 ventures in the, uh, in the sample, and they are in 104 communities across the US. So our dependent variable, the use of commercial activities in your venture, is a one to five. Um, is a one to five, uh, coded one to five, where one is purely non-commercial sources of funding. So this is the typical charity model that you'd expect a social sector organization to take on, all the way to five, where they say in their applications that we are going to use purely commercial sources of funding. These are open-ended text um, you know, boxes and answers from application essays that we had coded by independent readers who showed a very high degree of reliability and went through a very long and rigorous coding process happy to talk to you about that later offline <coughs> if you want. Um, the independent variables, the gender of the founder is coded from the application essay as well. As well. One is if you're female. And the proportion <coughs> of female business owners in the local geographic community, um, this was constructed in two steps. So first, ventures were matched to the core-based statistical area. This is basically a large metropolitan area. Um, and it's, this is a commonly used technique to study communities in uh, the organizational field. And then to that, um, we then looked at the US Census Bureau's uh, data on um, the survey of business owners from the year 2007, which is when our data are from. And this tells you sort of the percentage of women in that local community that are business owners. 
We had a variety of control variables. You won't see them in the actual models, but I'm happy to share the paper um, just because of cluttering up the screen. But basically, the community level uh, characteristics that we controlled for included funding environment, as prior research would suggest, population, per capita income, a variety of things like that. At the project level, characteristics included, you know, were you in health versus education versus something else? Um, and at the founder level, we controlled for things like work experience, education, and race. All right. So what do we see? So this is a um, mixed effects ordinal logit, which essentially takes care of or accounts for the fact that we have multiple observations within a single community. So the errors are correlated for. Can, can I'm so sorry. Yes. Can I interrupt just because it is relevant. To yes. The, um, the questions that were asked. What? What are? What are? How are you controlling for work experience? So we just we have basically from their essay we coded. Have you actually? How many years have you worked in? Hold on. Let me tell you what it is in the actual paper. worked in a non in a for-profit organization and then I think that was just a yes no or uh, is it no, years uh, no it's uh, so in their applications they listed the industries they worked in mm -hmm. and so we coded those industries as whether they fall into a nonprofit or a <laughs> and then for education we have degree in business okay that was either undergraduate or graduate and then for race we had african-american versus other okay so you have for-profit experience and business and those are highly, um, actually, the work and for-profit experience is not significant, but degree in business is highly significant. So these effects are all above and beyond that. Um, okay, so any other questions on those? So what we see here in the first row, you'll see this is the female founder. And um, essentially, you see that, this, um, that the effect on use of commercial practices is significant and negative suggesting that, in fact, women founders, women founders of social ventures are less likely to use commercial practices in their ventures. Let me just show you what this looks like. So here along the y-axis, you have each of the levels of commercialization that we coded for. So one is basically purely charitable to five, which is purely commercial. And um, on the, that's on the x-axis. On the y-axis, you have the probability of using each of these type, um, this, each of these levels. The blue bars are female founders, and the green bars are male founders. And so what you'll see is at every positive level of commercialization, so that's two, three, four, and five, women are significantly less likely to use commercial activities than male founders are. The second row now is the interaction effect that we were predicting. So you can see here that being a female founder in a community that has a greater proportion of female business owners actually mitigates this effect. And this coefficient is positive and significant, but let me show you what this looks like in a graph. This graph is actually true for all levels, two, three, four, and five, but I just blew up five to see in particular because it's easy to see here. Along the x-axis now, you have the proportion of female business owners in a local community. Along the y-axis, you still have the probability of use of commercial practices. The red triangles are the female founders, the blue circles are male founders. And so what you'll see is that as the proportion of female business owners <coughs> in the community increases, the likelihood of using commercial practices if you're a female founder also increases. Just one question. So yeah. these are female business owners in commercial contexts? Yes. 
Exactly. So they own what are um, essentially uh, categorized as for-profit businesses. So is this a network effect that they have? Yeah. Uh, or, or is yeah. it a uh, psychological? Yeah. This is a great question. Um, so part, so first of all, I think theoretically it does not have to be, right? So if you think about what could be happening, it doesn't necessarily presume that it has to be like a network or interaction thing that because I'm there, I give you more. It, it could be that I'm giving you more access to resources. We're bonding on the shared characteristic of gender, even across these sectoral boundaries. That could totally be happening. Um, it could also just be that because this, there is this presence of women business owners, that people in, the, in this local environment have a different mental model of what it means to engage in commercial activity, that in fact the sex typing in that local community of commercial activity could have been altered. We can't actually distinguish between those with our data, but I don't think it has to rely on interaction. Yeah, because the DV is about them getting money from, the commercial activity here is getting money from other how much they intend to. So these guys are, you know, so we look at early stage social ventures. Actually, in the next sample, we'll show you how much money, like actual yeah. revenue. Um, but here, this is my proposed use of commercial ventures. Does that? Yeah. I, I just think the, the, the network argument, I think, seems very maybe maybe, maybe maybe you have other data to, to argue against that. But there are also the data in the venture community basically mm -hmm. showing that women's, um, Capacity to um, raise funds in the venture community. I believe there's there's network data showing that women that that, that it's that it's actually yeah. there's a there's a gender net, there's a there's a gender homophily story about women's access to venture right. capital. Yep. So that would be that it's would be consistent. Kind of, that would be very consistent with the network yeah. story. I think yeah. my my tendency yeah. is sort of to say. Yeah. Yeah is more to say we actually can't tell you what the underlying mechanism is. So it could be like just altering <laughs> stereotypes. It could be actual interaction. And we, you know, yep. it'd be consistent with both of those. Um, Are they using any other type of strategies or behaviors if they're decreasing in commercial activity rates? Are they just using any other type of activities in to, order to increase their yeah. charitable yeah. revenue? That's an interesting question. We haven't actually examined that. Um, what would you think of looking at? Well, I guess if there's a higher proportion of like females in your network, and then that means you're less inclined to use the commercial type of behaviors, right? Within your Within social your sector social network. network. Yeah. So we actually do have a little bit of um, a, a little way of teasing that out in a second, which I'll get to get to. Yeah. Um, so actually, maybe it's coming up on the next slide. In fact. <laughs> So, in summary, what we have here is that studies of commercialization of the social sector have really, you know, not paid attention to the role of gender, and yet, as a gendered person, it's scholar, it's sort of phenomenal to think that they haven't. Um, and second, that we have this notion that the cultural beliefs about gender can result, even within social ventures in the social sector, in this uh, less likelihood of using commercial practices. However, the presence of female business owners in the local community can mitigate this effect. That's just a summary. But what's interesting to think about, um, you know, in terms of what Shira was asking, um, was I'll, I'll go into this slide in a second. But we also thought about, well, whether are there is it just sort of a general female role modeling effect, right, that alters a whole set of stereotypes, not necessarily associated with commercial practices, for example, um, and so or maybe even accentuated this use, as you were suggesting. And so we did a couple of things. We looked at um, women in women leaders in um, the House of Representatives, so political leaders, so sort of a general, um, uh, I'm just going to look at exactly how we phrase this in the paper. Um, 
unless Stefan has it on the back of his hand. Right. Well, it was just whether um, women female have been elected to the House of Reps. To the House of Reps, yeah. Uh, so female reps in, the U uh, in Congress, in the local community's congressional district, and the proportion of local nonprofit leaders that were women as interaction trends as well. And we actually don't see this effect. So we actually think it's fairly specific to this association between women engaging in commercial practices that's altering this behavior. Um, and then in addition to that, we also did, you know, to this issue of self-selection into the population of social ventures, um, you know, we looked at course and exact matching. We also did a simulation, which is all in the paper and I can go into offline if you're interested in that. But just to get a sense of how robust are these findings, and in fact, we find that they're pretty robust. Um, but this was actually, you know, because it's not a representative sample and we have these self-selection issues, we actually thought that it would be worth engaging in a constructive repl replication. So this is the second data set that we're going into now. And the point of a constructive replication is you essentially try to test the same underlying hypotheses, the same model, except with a different oper <coughs> operationalization of the variables in a different sampler setting. Um, and so here what we have is a second data set on nonprofit entrepreneurship. These new nonprofit organizations are quite similar to our social ventures in that they're recently founded, they're social sector organizations that are devoted <laughs> to a social mission, and yet they face the same commercialization pressures, right? Um, and in fact, what we have access to is the full population of newly founded nonprofit organizations. And so we don't have the same set of selection concerns. So what we have, 20, over 29,000 nonprofit ventures founded during the years 2001, 2, and 3 um, from the Urban Institute database. Our dependent variable here to um, Michelle's question, the use of commercial activity, is actually taken from tax filings. So this is actual percentage of total revenue you get from providing some sort of service that you're, um, you know, people are paying you for. Um, the independent variables here, we actually could go beyond just female founders to your question a little earlier about do we look more broadly than the founder. Um, here we actually look at female leaders of the organization. This is also on the same IRS form where we have the names of the top five ranking officers. And so we can look at whether it was the founder, CEV, any of these were women. So are you teasing out commercial activity outside of just the fundraising? So for instance, lead generation is a huge part of business, you know, an SME developing a pipeline, prospects mm -hmm. and things like that. So are you actually teasing out what constitutes commercial activity? No, this is just overall percentage of what's reported <laughs> in terms of earned revenue. That's it. So we don't have, we don't break it down further into types of, or where it's that coming from, or source of. Um, I mean, that is definitely, Stefan knows this data a little bit more clearly. Is it possible and would it be useful? I mean, it's unfortunately not possible. I think it'd be really interesting to look at data like that, but unfortunately the way that the income is reported on the 990 forms for nonprofits, it's usually bundled under program services. But, but your underlying question is, so would it be more possible, for example, if you were a female social venture founder to raise money from X type of source rather than Y type of source or something like that? Then you'd see even more fine-grained differentiation. Yeah. Right, exactly. A good, yeah, for sure. If you're a five on the scale and very commercially oriented, would you file as a nonprofit? Are there, you know, there's other kinds of B corps and things like that. So the yeah. fives completely taking themselves off the table. Yeah. So this is a this is an interesting question. And Julie and um, Alnur and uh, Johanna Meyer, right, the three of you on that paper, actually make this very nice distinction between social sector organizations and their legal status and um, so in this 
if I if I recall correctly, in this we actually do control for their legal status. We don't control for their no. They're all they're all within the five hundred one. Sorry, they're all nonprofit organizations. Sorry, that's not what I meant. In the first data set, we actually don't have. They're very new. They haven't yet figured out where they are. But in this data set, they're all nonprofits. I think to your question, sorry, you want to jump in? The first that I said, some, some of them are very early, others have already incorporated. So we actually can, on the subsample, look into that, and we're controlling for legal status on that subsample for some of them. But it's, it's, it's a really small sample we're talking about. And in fact, I sort of feel like I can answer this question because we sort of have different definitions of that sample, and I'm pretty confident that we see in the data the effect of gender we've been describing here is always there. The point that to tell you the truth, you know, we sort of went to Lakshmi just because the, the, the results were consistently in front of us, sort of saying gender, gender, gender is critical there. So I, I have to give Julia Matt a lot of credit for this too, though, because they were like, you know, because you're so used to in a lot of journal articles where it's a control variable. And they were like, no, there's something here, there's something here. There's, it's not just a control variable that's significant, there's a story. So, I mean, there, there's a lot of, um, you know, talk about that. But I think to your other point about are they just taking themselves off the table? Um, you know, so I think Matt has <coughs> doesn't he have um, data coming from the other side? So I think Matt's actually investigating that question, right? Like organizations that start out on the commercial end of the spectrum on purpose, or am I misremembering? So, so he, he has data about sourcing <coughs> from. Uh, when they are a little bit more advanced, mm -hmm. and they're likely to sort of attract different sources of funding. So this is super novel and about to happen, and, yeah, and, and it's harder for hybrid organizations to raise funds. Yeah. So. I should probably let you go on, yeah. but just in differentiating your narratives, I wonder whether if you did an interaction between experience and percent of women, so you'd actually expect if you if if this was the story if 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 part of the story were your social influence story, mm -hmm. then you'd actually expect the least experienced women to be the most influenced by women with business skills within the community, mm -hmm. right? Whereas yeah. once you're controlling for experience, then I have my own I think you have a harder time differentiating this social and material arguments mm -hmm. about why the network works. That is really cool. <laughs> That's really nice. I'd sort of given up on us being able to get to real mechanism with these data in a more fine-grained way, but that's a very I interesting just, I don't know way to that, look at it. Yeah, yeah, if it even is significant. If it's not... Interesting. Separation. Yeah. So you have your own experience to fall back on, and so you're less likely to be well, susceptible that You would see if it was a mentoring type of thing yeah. that the women in the business community were doing, we're doing, you would expect the effect to be greatest for women with the least amount of That's business really experience, right, or Super training. Cool. But, sorry, but wouldn't that conflict a little bit with your network argument that would they be able to get those mentors if they didn't have the business experience? Well, what do you mean? So the previous point made about networks and homophily would imply that women are using more commercial means in their social ventures because they have more exposure to women in the business community. They have actual contact women are more willing to give them money than men are. Like men are more inclined to invest in men. In men, right. Women okay, may be invest, more inclined. Not, not women, money, women, so right. not donations, but to invest. To invest, okay. do business. I mean, that's, that's the venture right. analogy, right? 
so they're they're more likely to help them commercialize. Yeah, no, it's definitely a lot to think about. Right. Or even if from a, you, we could go down this train for a while. Actually, I'm just thinking of a bunch of different. I was wondering even if female and male leaders might have a different propensity in going from non-profit to profit. Mm -hmm. So that might be a problem for your sample in the end. So say if, if, the, if, the, if the male leaders were, were switching more often than mm -hmm. the, 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 the different non-profit ventures across male and female, uh, female leaders would look very different. <coughs> switching more often meaning Within so so the same leader but across ventures, or am I misunderstanding? The same leader and, and the male leader is more likely to go from profit to from non-profit to profit. Mm -hmm. So then basically the sample of the non-profit ventures across male and female leaders will look very different. It's like a revolving door argument, right? Yeah, it's yeah. Like so a, so like they're, they're they're more likely to go seek out. Yeah, that's I. Where I agree with you that there is sort of, at least in our first sample, there are, stuff, there, there are definitely sort of selection into the sample things, right? So you have, first of all, are you even going to start one? Second of all, if you start one, are you likely to even apply to the fellowship? Like, but here what we're looking at is within the bounded, the entire population of nonprofit organizations. And so you might argue, okay, so men are going to be less likely, if I follow your argument right, men are going to be less likely to be represented in that population overall. Right? They're, they're not even coming into the nonprofit, the entire universe of nonprofits, at the same rate that women are. So women are, are going to be over likely to be in this sample. But then if we're still finding effects within that, I would imagine that that's sort of a more conservative version of looking at what you're saying. Do you see what I mean? So, so also, yes, and so it's my first also, what would be interesting is to see how the conversion rate from nonprofit to profit looks like by gender. Maybe mm -hmm. if you can basically look at the, 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 the age of the, the ventures, that might be might be another interesting outcome. Um, part of what I want to say, I, I I may be misunderstanding, but I think what where you're going is sort of what are the consequences also of moving in a particular direction. So we can't we don't necessarily have conversion rate. Um, but we do have the survival of the ventures, which I'll get to in a second, if that helps a little bit, thinking about where you go, what, the same train of thought, hopefully. Um, okay, so what do we have here? Independent uh, variables, female leaders from the same tax form. The proportion of female business owners is the same data set except from the year 2002, which is closer to the year where these organizations are founded. And what we see, um, so again, this is a multi-level regression. And uh, the first, um, what we see here is basically a replication of the, main effect, of the main effect and the interaction that we saw previously. So the first line, being a female, have, being a nonprofit with, that's female-led actually has a negative effect on the percentage of revenue you get from commercial sources. Um, and then second, if you're in a community that has a high proportion of female business owners or as the proportion of female business owners in your community increases, this has a mitigating effect. Um, such that you're more likely to have a greater percentage of commercial um, revenue. So we did have sort of a more exploratory question around whether this commercialization, so what we've shown you so far is essentially that, that there are these gender dynamics around the use of commercial practices in social venture organizations, and that, uh, and that there is this underlying locus of tension is around 
um, perhaps women engaging in masculine type activity even within the social sector and the mitigating, uh, the possible mitigating uh, factors associated with women engaging in commercial activity in the commercial sector. But we also had this exploratory question around whether this commercialization of female-led social ventures actually affects, um, you know, more than the fact that I do it, does this actually affect the organization itself? And so what we were able to do with these data was actually look at uh, organizational survival. Essentially, our dependent variable, you can actually look at the tax filing um, from the, for, we looked at the tax filings for five years out. So essentially five years out from, found, um, you know, from this early stage, venture, uh, early stage organization, are you still reporting taxes? And what we're thinking there is if you're not, this is evidence of some kind that you have failed, um, as a, that you don't exist as an organization. So what, I, what we have, the dependent variable here, one is risk of failure. And so what you see is a, is a hazard model predicting the risk of failure of nonprofit organizations um, in, this, uh, in this population. And you have, for the first line just looks at whether you're a female-led organization, right? And that is, uh, doesn't really seem to have much of an effect. The second is looking at whether you're an organization that generates revenue from commercial practices or the extent to which you generate your revenue from commercial practices. And that really doesn't seem to have much an effect on your risk of failure. But the interaction term, is actually significant, such that being a female-led uh, organization that is generating revenue from commercial sources actually increases the risk of failure five years out. So this actually leaves us with somewhat of a, um, you know, <coughs> set of questions about what the implications for this are. Um, you know, does, that there are real organizational consequences to this choice by founders of whether to commercialize or not, um, especially if you're a female founder. One thing that we can't do, and I'd be interesting, interested to get your feedback on this, is we can't really differentiate whether this survival, you know, so the increased risk of failure is because of greater backlash, which would be sort of my preferred explanation, um, <laughs> or there are other sort of differences that are going on that result um, in this greater risk of failure. So maybe that's something to think about for our discussion. Oh, yeah. It's the interaction, right? So, if, so it's not just female leaders versus male leaders. It's not just whether you're engaging in commercial revenue versus not. It's if you are a female-led social venture and you're engaging in greater commercialization, then you have, then you're less likely to, in, you know, in our data set, it's basically you're less likely to show up in our data set in your, as, a, as an existing viable organization. Less likely than if you hadn't engaged in commercial. Right, so that would be the main, that would be the second main effect. Right. So, essentially, what do we we think this paper is really interesting and makes contributions for a number of reasons. Just one question. Um, I know that you collected data on race. Um, given that, as I understand it, African American women are the fastest growing entrepreneurial segment. Yeah. Did you look at that? Uh, we do, and actually, we have we don't uh, we don't um, talk about it in this paper, but um, but the four of us started another collaboration around specifically uh, looking at race because you can also do this not the same but a similar sort of analysis, which would suggest that you know to some extent the um, you know the racial dynamics in the social sector are pretty clearly demarcated, right? Beneficiaries are often 
um, you know, people of color, the grantee, you know, leading or donating, giving organizations are often white. Like, there's a ton of underlying racial dynamics in this whole setup that sort of moved us in that direction too. Um, do you remember what if there is an interaction with gender and race and what we did about that? Um, so, so I mean, the limiting factor for us was that the survey of business owners, the 2007 edition, did not publish what the statistics were for um, uh, the racial minorities and women. So the intersection, those statistics are not published, strangely enough. Um, so we couldn't really test our interaction for the subset of women who are African American or Hispanic or Asian or other races. Um, and so we were really unable to kind of explore that. Maybe the 2012 edition, which is not yet been published, will include that, hopefully. So maybe we'll see soon. Do you replicate the same interaction effect of, um, of like black uh, organizational leader times percentage of um, business community? Well, that's what Stefan's saying, that we actually don't have great data. No, no, data. he's saying you don't have the interaction. Of, of, you don't, of you don't women have and the level of, You don't have yeah, it yeah. at that level, but if you had it at the race level, Just have you replicated that? We haven't. Uh, no, we haven't looked into that direction, no. Yeah, the race wasn't the focus of this paper. Yeah. That might help, again, with the network argument. Say more? Because, so if you, had because you wouldn't have the gendered story, but you'd have the same network story, right? Got it. Mm -hmm. Well, okay. So homophily, right? Later. So yeah. you're, or if you're, if you're, if you're more likely to be supported by people like yourself. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> but it wouldn't necessarily help distinguish between whether it's the change of the stereotype. African-Americans, anything, are stereotype masculine. Right. Oh. Right? Got so it. I see. You understand what I mean? That's so you're, you're, you'd be, you'd be looking see. at a minority group that is actually stereotype masculine. And you would see whether That's your effect replicates. That would suggest that the it's more about the. That would suggest a number about yeah demographic proportions perhaps and homophily, than then altering stereotyped gender right. frames. Got it. Yep. So what do we think this paper, um, you know, says or contributes to what we know about um, organizations and especially between the social and commercial sector? First. Julie and others have really called for attention to the antecedents of hybridity, so we keep documenting the fact that this increasing blurring occurs, so what drives it um, beyond just these environmental factors. Um, there's really the, the role of individual founders in this and the role of gender, we think, is a very novel introduction to that literature. Um, in terms of local communities and gender, I actually see this as an opportunity for the gender literature and organizations in particular. Because we think of communities, we're introducing communities here as a really important social relational context in which gendered cultural beliefs are being activated. And if you think about sort of the studies that Shelley Carell or Cecilia Ridgway have done, like community is just sort of an absent kind of thing. And so this would be a very interesting, um, you know, sort of level at which to think about the influence of communities on gender dynamics and organizations. Um, we also clearly contribute to gendered aspects of entrepreneurship. Much of the work we know looks at differences in founding rates, in performance, discrimination. Um, but here what we're doing is saying gendered cultural beliefs actually inform your choice of how to organize, right? What is the kind of organizing activity you engage in? Um, and that this kind of entrepreneurship actually becomes a mechanism for transmitting cultural beliefs into new organizations, into newly founded organizations. Um, and last, um, you know, if you think about 
this blurring of the boundaries, what I found super interesting about this, you know, and I set this up a little bit at the beginning, that much of the work, at least in gender and organizations that I'm familiar with as living in the business school, um, often looks at women who are disadvantaged in male tasks in male-dominated settings. And so here, what we have is a very interesting situation of women engaging in masculine-type activity in a feminine-type setting. Um, and I think it's super cool to think about what's the joint examination of women perhaps disrupting gender norms in one sector, such as the female business owners in the commercial sector, and their relationship to women disrupting gender norms in the social sector, such as our female venture founders. I mean, this cross sectoral gender connection is a super interesting one to think about. You know, pioneers in one place influencing pioneers in another or something like that, being very colloquial here. But, um, and then to your um, earlier question about the meaning of commercial activity, I think this is a super provocative question um, to really think about because you can choose to see this in completely different ways, right? So on the one hand, is commercialization actually a process of masculinizing the social sector? And are men, founders perhaps, like one example of the carriers of this kind of logic, and are women who don't commercialize in the social sector being held back by occupational stereotypes of what's male-typed and proper activity for women, or are they actually defenders of feminine-typed work that should be like predominant in a feminine-type setting? Like You can really choose to have some interesting debates about this, I think. So with that, I'll leave it, and if you have any more questions or concerns, I'd love to hear them. So do congressional districts map onto CBSAs, and if so, what are the, um, that is a very good question. I don't know the answer to that. Yeah. More like, like, I don't know, yeah. more macro things, yeah. more local level that might. The mapping was definitely not clean, and there's yeah. no standardized process for doing it. So it was, it was pretty much, uh, we just approximated it based on uh, where the voters were located, where yeah. which voters were eligible. I'm not sure how big your communities are. CBSAs are pretty big. Pretty big. Um, so in that sense, it wasn't like it was including a lot of people who weren't in the CBSA mm -hmm. already. Um, so in that sense, it was it was more along the lines of maybe a couple of congressional districts being represented by one CBSA. Okay. But in that case, then both of those were counted um, in the measure. Um, connecting this at all to the organizational research um, by um, the other Shelley, who's now at um, some of the some of the research on organizational culture. You mean Shelley Brixen? Shelley Brixen's oh, work. Uh -huh. Yeah, on because I, I think that that's what you're arguing, right? Is that actually the organizations are adopting a feminized mm -hmm. cultures and. You know, I wonder if there's a connection to some of the other organizational scholars who've looked at how organizational variation, organizational culture affects organizational practices. I don't remember what Shelley predicts anymore yeah. with that work, but I know she looked pretty deeply at kind of like collectivist. She did type individualistic, stuff. collectivistic, and relational. Yeah, her, which, that's her which actually fits pretty well with your yeah, masculine, feminine. But I don't remember what her DBs were. But that she looked pretty deeply, I think. 
and you know she has not really talked about it from a gender perspective like she calls them individualistic collectivistic and relational but mm -hmm. you know there's not really an underlying um, piece around gender but what it makes me think of is actually Mandy O'Neill has some interesting work on organizational cultures on masculine organizational cultures mm. and so that might be a place to hook in that's yeah. more that's See what closer predict yeah. and that would yeah. sort of fit with what you mm -hmm. guys are finding mm -hmm. If you were speaking to a group of um, female founders of nonprofits who were thinking about moving to um, to like commercialize some of their um, programs or revenue streams or whatever, what would be your advice? It's a great question, and Julie and I have talked about this a little bit because she's actually been doing interviews with these female founders, and actually she should. It's a complicated question because I don't want us to assume that. If you're about to address a social problem, the thing you should do is create a social enterprise and generate commercial revenue. So I, I'm just, you know, just want to be clear about that and saying that it depends on what you're up to and like the. So now, what I do see in the work I'm doing with people who create what I call a hybrid organization that generates some revenue is that uh, the women I interview talk about the struggles they face without me priming them in any way. So it's actually very interesting that I would very often sort of report to Stefan, Lakshmi, and Matt conversations, and I know the same from Matt, in which you have founders of hybrid organization, female founders who would say things like, it's unbelievable, I'm attending this event, and I'm pitching, and this guy next to me is pitching too, and I have to face questions such as, why are you doing it in such a way? You know, you could have a more traditional model, and, and, and they would report that they feel frustrated because these questions are not asked to the men around them who they say have the exact same model. No, I'm not in the room, so I don't know the extent to which they have the exact same model. And again, like it's not it's not a normative approach, this is what they should do. But that's at least what they report. So they, they this frustration exists uh, and comes out of interviews without asking them questions about gender differences. Question um, I have a I am actually a co-founder of uh, NGO that does commercial ventures, so I'm resonating <laughs> with me um, in a different context because <clears throat> it's in Southeast Asia, small uh, country, so different from, from how things work here. But, um, but I, I, I was wondering if one of the issues that you face is that maybe in the social sector, women have more room to this is a very, it's a, it's a generalization, but to be mothers, to have more time, to have, to, to follow more of the typical, stereotypical woman role than what they would find in the commercial sector. Mm -hmm. um, because what I think, and obviously this is not saying that in the social sector you don't work extremely hard, which you do, but maybe because the environment is more protective, mm -hmm. because as you said, it's more, uh, the focus is more caring, it's more um, selfless, mm -hmm. uh, then maybe women find it more, find it easier, or the, the environment makes it easier mm -hmm. than what it would be in the commercial sector. So I think that's very consistent with our understanding of what, you know, female-typed work, you know, is supposed, why it's supposed to be, a, you know, sort of the cultural model or ideal or attractive. Um, but I think if I'm understanding correctly, you're you're suggesting that this um, that this is it's more in line with the 
Um, therefore, you would expect perhaps female social venture founders to be more inclined to identify with and defend the charity model, that kind of explanation, than the kind of explanation that's in line with I'm trying to do it and I'm getting all the, you know, the backlash that I'm not supposed to, right? Like the, both, because yeah. I think both of these could be going on simultaneously. <laughs> and yeah, so does that? Um, I'm not sure if there have been studies on this uh, conducted before your paper came out, but what do you think the effect will be if you transplanted the same sort of study onto a different geography, mm -hmm. where social pressures on women are amplified? Say, for example, in communities like India, mm -hmm. I'm not very familiar with Africa, but I would assume they are the same. Mm -hmm. Because there are examples in India of women-led social organizations which uh, take care of childcare, mm -hmm. uh, which create uh, local farms, I mean, they're not revenue-based, uh, revenue-driven models, but they have been breaking the social norms, so mm -hmm. to say. Do you think the results will be completely different? I mean, what do you expect those sort of uh, effects to look like? So would you expect to see, for example, female founders in a place like India right. engage and less, le are less likely to engage in commercial practices? Yes. I mean, I think this is a super interesting question in any sort of other maybe more developing economy context. And I have not talked about this to Stefan and Julie, so I'd be totally interested to see what they say. But having worked in development for many years and sort of you see what, um, you know, what's interesting actually in like some of the gender, and there are more people who know more about this in this room than I do, but what you see I think in the gender literature in development in particular is that women basically own the informal economy and small scale trading, my little basket weaving shop, my market selling techniques or whatever. And then still when you get to like formal enterprises, it becomes more and more masculine, right? And so even when you say that women engaging in commercial practices because they're used to doing it in the markets and they're used to doing it in this and they're used to doing it that and there are no penalties for that, I still think by the time you get to starting a formal organization and engaging in commercial activity, there's likely to be some underlying gender dynamic. That would be my guess, just based on that literature. But I agree, and I think the general uh, colloquial observation would be that women who are in leadership positions tend to be more masculine in general, and I think that comes from the expectation that if you don't behave like a man, you should get attacked. Okay. I mean, yeah, that's like a much bigger, <laughs> or related but much bigger yeah. issue than we can than we deal with this about the way the conversation's been shaping out and the question which took place about sort of geography and looking at the elected officials, an interesting overlay might be not just looking at congressional representation, but if one is thinking, for example, about the informal economy where mm -hmm. women um, in some regions have really dominated, when you get to the more formal yeah. economy with greater returns, men have continued to dominate. Sort of the parallel for that is if you look within this country at state legislatures. Mm -hmm. State legislatures where, and state legislatures, every state defines for itself in essence what are the gains associated with serving in those roles. And on the whole, this has begun to change a bit, but on the whole, legislatures that are more formal, that meet year round and have high pay and high status, have many, many, many more men. And legislatures that are low pay, are considered part-time, have lower status, tend to be more female. But that might be a really nice proxy for this kind of yeah, yeah. for that kind of piece and for getting a sense of where um, how women are faring in the community. And I bet you'll see sort of um, 
some interplay with what are the business networks like, you know, how far have women risen in the community? Interesting. And, and the other piece which keeps running through my mind is who chooses to apply for these fellowships? Yeah. And that I keep sort of wondering, yeah. is it just in some way a more masculine <coughs> task to go and apply for a competitive entity from the get-go? Right. right. And which right. still tells us something important. Yeah. Um, but it makes me keep wondering what isn't yes. getting captured in that, and is there something interesting yeah. up there so, as well? So that, I think, is definitely a limitation of our sample. Um, but we did try to address that. I mean, so there's this, um, and Stefan probably is the one who should answer or, or talk about this a bit more, but we did do a course in exact matching, which looks at this, like sort of looking at sex imbalances in, that, in the, yeah. the sample that we end up getting. Um, and these simulations where we sort of, you can run sort of if there were X number of women in this community versus that and this would, you know, so if, do you want to say more about what we did to address some of the substance? Uh, yeah, I, I think, I mean, the question that you matching would, was kind of helpful to, to look into that where we tried to match every woman. So first of all, the sample was almost perfectly balanced. There were 50% women, 50% men. Um, of course, that doesn't address the issue you brought up, so we tried to match them based on how similar they look to each other. And the, the results were unchanged, they were exactly the same. Um, so that kind of gave us a bit more faith in what was going on. But of course it's not enough, so, which is why we conducted the constructive blood verification where you don't have the same selection issues. I also did have at one point, um, Hannah knows this a little bit, but I, 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 I do also do conduct experiments. And so there was, like we were going through variations of, is there an experimental way to get at this? And let me tell you, trying to induce community, I know why people like Cecilia or Shelley don't do community level effects, because trying to induce community in a laboratory is completely kind of crazy making. So, you know, I think there's, a, you know, so we try to explore other avenues to make sure that we could say that these results were robust, but I think we're feeling, feeling pretty yeah, confident really, about that. Absolutely, really so. interesting. Sorry. Sorry, I had a thought, but let other people. Yeah. Have you looked at any of the bigger and more visible not-for-profits, you know? So for example, you know how the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation works in terms of gendering? Because I mean, they have, you know, that's that question of, you know, what are the, are there gendered roles, right, in this? And um, what kind of path do they lead you down in terms of commercialization? You know, that's an interesting question. We have not looked at it. But what you're saying makes me think of, you know, sort of if we went back to the earlier question about the sources of, and what you'd expect probably to see if we could break it down, would be even within sort of choosing charity, like, you know, even uh, even when, like, for example, some sort of interrelationship between if, if a lot of your funding is coming from something like the Gates, which, for example, I happen to know, like many of these large organizations, large, uh, you know, um, grant-making organizations often now ask you to include commercial sources or some sort of revenue generation kind of model um, or sets of you know ideas anyway when they're when you're when they're giving you the grant money and so you know you could almost imagine that there's sort of this weird push towards more commercialization from grant-making sources that would be an interesting thing to consider but that's I mean this is our first stab at Sector. And like one of the assumptions I would have probably that 
in the literature, we often see that women self-selecting to the low-profit sectors, like services sector, developing countries, etc. Even the case here, it's uh, non-profits which are owned by women, operate mainly, let's say, in the arts and culture, probably would be less revenue generating than healthcare sector. Mm -hmm. So, uh, like, do you think about that? We control for area of social action, even in the second example, yeah. too. Yeah. So this is the, so these effects are controlling for what area you choose to be in. So if that effect was there, and we haven't looked at an interaction though in particular. We did look at interactions, okay. and there wasn't anything really there. There weren't any consistent differences between the, the different areas of social action because we, we we looked at those a lot. Right. Yeah. Oh, that's right. Because we were hoping <laughs> to go down that path and investigate something along those lines, but. Representation. It may include um, the, the, just the whole political, you know, context. It also may include family role models. It may include, uh, you know, all these other factors. So, you know, in the spirit of intersectionality, it sounds like thinking in terms of that layered complexity may be a, a way to kind of build a larger frame around this. Yeah. Topic. No, that's a very beautiful thought. But, I mean, I kind of resonate with that. If you could put all the pieces together and. I do think this, you know, maybe this is, it's like what you put in a single paper versus what you elicit from the whole, right? And I think you're absolutely right. It's a very nice way of thinking about it. Exposure to business. 
experience in the for-profit okay. sector and education, like business degree as an and education. And those were like yes, no questions. So I think one is yes, no, and the other is years, you said, or you said something else. Well, well we have the, the edu their education, so what degrees they have, so okay. whether they had graduate education in business, whether they did their undergrad in, in some business or economics kind of type field. So that was the educational component. And then the work uh, component had to do with their work experience, and we knew the latest company they worked for, as well as the, the industry they worked in. Okay. And that was pretty explicit, you know, accounting, blah, 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 these for-profit ones. So the reason I was asking was, I think that um, research suggests that men and women are both developing social capital as they move through their careers, but men are developing wider, maybe more sparsely connected networks mm -hmm. because they hop in and out of sectors all the time, whereas women tend to be developing more dense, mm -hmm. narrow yeah. sets of social mm -hmm. capital. And the inaccurate influence the extent to which a man or woman would choose to commercialize um, in the sense that if you have this sparse, wide network, you're getting varieties of types of information that's influencing the choices you're going to make as you go down the road. Whereas if you're in this more narrow, dense network, your view of information is much more narrow. So I guess I was just thinking if you had a, a measure of how varied their careers were, um, mm -hmm. whether that would influence the extent to which, which they chose to yeah, so not just do you have exposure or not, but variability or something. Yeah, and I, I don't know if you have that or not, but, um, you know, I... I yeah, I'm just, just building on that. Like, one of the things I was struck is just knowing Julie is a sociologist and not knowing a lot about institutional theory, but I know they talk a lot about kind of novel forms versus more established forms, and I, I found it kind of interesting that the proportion of the sample that was out five on commercialization is actually the minority of your sample, whereas the predominant form yeah. was this more nonprofit non model. Yeah. So, I mean, you you have this, you have the riskier, right, less well institutionalized form, um, uh, that where that where you're finding the gender variation, and it could be this sort of network. It could be that's yeah. you know experiment. It could be the strength of weak ties type of thing, right, right. or it could also be that you have this not very well institutionalized form, and that's masculine stereotypes. And therefore, when somebody arrives, I'm I'm less maybe I'm less skeptical about the novel form when it arrives in a masculine bundle <laughs> than you know in a feminine bundle because that would even that would even that would even more defy the sort of institutionalized norm. You know, for your backlash. Or yeah, absolutely. And I think that the, the, the network effect you're describing is an intriguing question. We kind of study this data. But yeah, I, 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 about the I fellowship might not running be able here. Yeah. In fact, I collected network data uh, for yeah. a case study I did with them this past weekend. And I was thinking that's going to be interesting to track that over time to see the extent to which we see the dynamics you're predicting. Yeah. 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 So, you know what? It's really, really good. I think we're almost at the end. Can I ask one last question and then take advantage? Do you have any qualitative data on whether this question earlier about um, why there, why women, why um, uh, commercial ventures would disappear more often when they're female than male run? Mm -hmm. Do you have any data on the time intensity of running a commercial as opposed to non-commercial venture? So, so we don't, I mean, that's, a, that's an interesting question, and the qualitative part is something we've been wondering about. Like, yeah. We do have some qualitative data, but they wouldn't enable us to answer this question. Matt, in his dissertation work, uh, looked into 
uh, how difficult it is for restaurants, depending on whether you're sort of you know the, the typical not-for-profit versus the hybrid. And, and as you would expect, it is definitely much more difficult. In fact, if you're a hybrid, so you could be thinking it's also much more time-consuming. Yeah. And and he's finding an interesting moderation that uh, though there are situations in which there is a better alignment between the social and commercial activities, and then in those situations, then there are more synergies. So it's it becomes easier to do it, and and you do not face the same kind of obstacles, which may also have to do with time. The fact that it's it's an yeah. easier message, and the framing works better, and then you can more easily raise the funds. I mean, because I could imagine, like, if yeah. you're just like a, if I mean, if you're just like connected to a government hose, right? I mean, where you're right. just like you're commercial, but all you basically get is government contracts, contracts right? That are fairly, you know, they're they're it's a it's a rich rich resource rich environment with maybe government work norms. That's a very different thing than being more like a commercial venture. It's just interesting. I'm, I serve on the board of a nonprofit that's totally fee based. And because they don't charge a lot of money, they work so hard. I mean, they you know they don't they don't demand they don't demand the same margins as a commercial venture relative to the amount of labor that they're doing. And so it ends up being a very time intensive operation to, to remain profitable and nonprofit at the same time. Right. So I would think that it very it, it's not I wouldn't think like commercialization itself, but it would vary maybe. Yeah, the type of the types. Yeah, because it goes back to the earlier question. What's the source? Is and where are the resources? And should we create typologies there? Yeah, so you're not only doing mm -hmm. commercial activity, which already entails a lot of different mindsets and, and work that you didn't have to do if you were just operating as a not-for-profit, but also you have to um, justify your social impact. So it requires that extra work. Right. Um, Plus, yeah, in, a, in a number of times, we are getting funding to do that uh, type of work. So we have to not only do the work that you would do as a, as a normal um, commercial venture, but then you have to report as you would in a not-for-profit style. So that just simply triples the work, exactly. um, which, which makes it very challenging um, and much more time-consuming. And also the, the skills it requires change a lot from who's leading the projects. And, and so that was a very, uh, very complicated shift. Right. So can I just ask a little bit more kind of in, in that vein though. So that's sort of the general tension, right? But then is there a specific underlying gender dimension that relates <laughs> to that tension, I guess would be the... I can tell you from an organizational point of view and from a community point of view, which is um, from a gender point of view, I would say that most of the people, and that links with the gender roles I was asking before, um, within our organization, for instance, uh, mainly, so men are typically doing more of the commercial side of things, and women are typically doing more of the finance and uh, fundraising. Mm -hmm. um, so that was interesting, interesting yeah. because it had that impact from a community point of view. Because a lot of the work that we do is community based, and so a lot of the work that we developed was to help communities start ventures. Mm -hmm. Uh, we also saw that there was an issue with, and you were saying before that, you know, at the low level, 
you would have much more interaction for women, but then when you went to a formal setting, it was much more complicated. We've seen that too. Um, and one of, the, one of the reasons was actually regarding the fact that women would have to go more out of the house. Mm -hmm. So at the lower level, you could still very much operate within, um, you know, close to your kids or close to your day-to-day -day, uh, house chores. Mm -hmm. But then once you formalized, and even if you were operating the house, but you know, you had to go to more meetings, you had to network with more people, and you had to be away more, mm -hmm. then yeah. women would find it much more troubling um, to keep that going. Often they would then, one of the ways that we've been trying to, to one of the options for them was to send that um, role to their husbands. Mm -hmm. One of the ways we're trying to fight it is to try to involve their daughters. So trying to see if we can train their daughters <laughs> because they needed to have, yeah. I mean, they couldn't get out of the house and so who would they send? So that's one of the things that we're doing is to try to involve their daughters and nieces. So interesting. That is very, that is a fascinating example. Well, wonderful. Thank Please you join me so Lakshmi Ramarajan. Um, please join us next week uh, on September 29th. Catherine Zippel, who's an associate professor of sociology at Northeastern, is going to be talking about paradoxes and transformations in higher education. So comparing um, European and U.S. perspectives.